In this episode of Real Christianity, we tackle an important question. How did God save people in the Old Testament? If the cross had not yet come, how is a person made right with God? This is a vital answer for New Testament Christians to have. So get ready. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org, where our mission is to bring the church back to the Bible. Question for you. Have you picked up a copy of my new best-selling kids book, Jesus and My Gender? You can see it on the screen if you're watching the video version. We've sold almost 5,000 copies in the last 90 days. This book does not introduce any uh, extra biblical uh, transgenderism to your child. This is just affirming your child's God-given gender. It's an incredible rhyming book. Uh, my kids loved it. Um, I've heard from so many different parents how it's been a great resource for them to have this discussion and topic. And um, and it's for kids anywhere between the ages of maybe, you know, two all the way to say 10. And so uh, if you want to pick up a copy, you can grab one from our store at relearn.org forward slash gender. You could also pick it up at Amazon. Either way, helps support our ministry. So on that note, let's go ahead and get started, dive into this episode, continuing our conversation and teaching through the book of Romans. This great book of Romans is broken into several sections. As we're getting through them here, we've just entered into section two. Now, the first major section ran from... Uh, chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verses 20, and uh, presents really the fallen state of mankind and the way of justification uh, through faith in Christ. The next section runs from the end of chapter 3 all the way into the middle of chapter 5, and that's really a defense of justification by faith through historical examples in the Old Testament. And so last week, or in the last episode, uh, we saw Paul anticipate an argument from the Jews that the doctrine of justification from faith alone is, is wrong. So he's anticipating that objection. And uh, he expected the Jews would really counter his claims, arguing that Abraham is uh, certainly justified by his works, by his work of circumcision. He's the great father of Israel, and um, he had some sort of contribution to his salvation, Right. Uh, this is what the Jews would be asking Paul, and Paul is anticipating that response. And so he writes the content that we're going to be reading here in chapter 4. Now, uh, Paul refutes that idea by citing Genesis 15, 6, that says, quote, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. And we went over that last week. In other words, the Jews were struggling to distinguish the physical covenantal administrations from the spiritual covenantal administrations. And I want you to follow along with me here. You know, they they needed to help seeing that circumcision, that the possession of the law, that the physical descendants of Abraham uh, were the physical signs and symbols that helped give uh, God's people reminders of the spiritual promises. But at the end of the day, they in of themselves do not save those weren't the things, your circumcision, your, your possession of the law, that you were related to Abraham physically or by, by blood was not actually the thing that saved you. And that's something that the Jews were struggling with. You no, know, the only things that could save are spiritual circumcision, 
the, the law written on the heart, um, the spiritual descendants of faith. Those are the things that would actually bring about salvation in a person's heart. In today's passage, Paul continues to defend against the idea that Abraham was justified by works by leveraging the testimony of Israel's other great figure, King David. And what he's doing here is that Paul isn't holding back any punches. He's taking the two twin towers of Israel's history, and he's proving that both of them held to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the point he's trying to get across is that if these two great men of Israel were not saved by works, but were saved by faith, were justified by faith alone in Christ alone, then you too must be saved or justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's read uh, chapter four, verses one through eight, just to, uh, we're gonna just familiarize, familiarize ourselves with the context of the passage. So verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, end quote. All right, so that was chapter four, verses one through eight. So we're gonna just read verses four and five just one more time, and then we're gonna just break it down verse by verse. So four and five. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's important that we just look at this and understand Paul has a gift or has a view that faith is a gift. We see this throughout scriptures, especially in Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9. But in light of that doctrine that Paul holds, he's making the point that if someone works, then you can't consider his wages a gift, but what is due. That's the point he's trying to make. Um, Robert Haldane uh, wrote a commentary on Romans uh, in the 1800s. He says, quote, no reward can be said to be of grace that is given for work of any description, end quote. Ultimately, if salvation is an act of grace, it, by its very nature, it cannot be earned by work. On the flip side, if salvation is earned by works, by what we do, by <clears throat> by our, uh, our sacramental uh, works uh, by our obedience, if it's earned by these things, then God would owe us salvation to some degree. Uh, in other words, any view that believes that works earn or contribute to maintaining your salvation or your justification puts God into debt to us and makes salvation an obligation of God to compensate us for our deeds. And so this is obviously just breaking down the gospel of grace. But Paul has made that abundantly clear in chapter three that none of us are righteous and that all of us are in need to be found righteous. And so the truth is that we are, uh, as Paul says again in chapter three, we're, we're, dirt that be, uh, we're dirt that disobeys. We're just 
people that are gross, deserving of hell, not righteous, not even one. Our mouths are like an open grave. Uh, we, we speak all these lies and we're constantly sinning. We don't fulfill the, even the greatest uh, and first commandment to love the Lord your God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves. We are in a constantly in a place of sin. Even uh, saints are constantly in a place of struggling with sin. I mean, I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning and I sinned today. And, and when you realize, oh Lord, I can't believe in the fact in, in light of the facts of grace, in light of the gospel that I continue to sin this way. And this is Paul, he talks about this in Romans. I can't believe I do the things that I don't want to do. And why can't I do the things that I do want to do? And there's a real reality of attention, of sanctification, of the Lord that's constantly working on our hearts in this time of uh, salvation. Now, again, our works don't contribute to keeping ourselves saved. Uh, we are resting on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. But we're saints that sin and we always need the gospel. Every day, we need our sin forgiven because every day we're continuing to fail and to fall short of the glory of God. Um, this is what makes the gospel of grace so amazing. I mean, it really does. The fact that when you can have a biblical anthropology of a biblical anthropological view of who we are, understanding the doctrine of total depravity, understanding how wicked and sinful we really are. And then you lay that doctrine next to the doctrine of the gospel. And it's just an amazing sign of grace. And Paul says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, first, I want to make an important point that a lot of people miss when they read this text. The first phrase is a statement of observation not a statement of duty. And I'm going to explain that here in a second. Paul is making an observation here. He's saying the ones who don't work, but believe, their faith is counted as righteousness. And what I mean there is that Paul is not saying in this passage, stop working and start believing. He's not telling dead men to believe. That's not necessarily what's being said here. He's, he's making... Uh, he's not making belief into a work, something that you need to do to save yourself. Uh, he's simply recognizing that those who believe have been given the gift of faith. And this is important because you need to understand that your very reason, your very capability, your very, um, uh, the possibility that you even believe is a gift, meaning that God gave you that ability to even have that belief, have that faith, to put that trust in Christ alone. Because without the Spirit of God changing your heart, you can't stop working and start believing. You can't. And we know that because Scripture tells us. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 7 says, quote, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, end quote. Now, Paul is telling the Romans, uh, Paul is not telling the Romans a command to believe in this passage. He's telling the Romans a fact that the believing ones will be saved, those that are believing. Now, let me give you another example. In John 3.16, you can do this. You can go to Google. You can uh, type in John 3.16 interlinear Greek, or just interlinear and it's going to show you the Greek and the English side by side. And you're going to read in John 3.16, 16, 
It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, you're going to know that passage because you probably know it by heart. And you go, well, whosoever believes. That's what a lot of people say. Well, in the Greek, it'll say something along these lines. And I'll do a transliteration from English to Greek. God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that the ones believing or that the believing ones should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what it says. And that's what it'll show you in the Greek interlinear. We just don't have the right words to translate it that way. And I think it's actually an unfortunate translation that we even do have, especially that most of us remember the translation from the KJV or the New King James Version. But it's the believing ones. And so God uh, loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that the ones that are believing, the ones that have been gifted faith, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so again, um, this is a subtle distinction because the ability for a person to believe is not possible with first God changing their heart. So Paul is not calling for lost people to exercise their carnal ability to trust Christ. Uh, that would turn into persuasion. That means that salvation is about persuading people uh, to exercising the faith that they already have within themselves. No, Paul teaches that faith is a gift of God and repentance is even granted as a gift of God. And that those things need to happen by God's grace for you to even repent and believe. And so that's why you can say for from him and through him and to him are all things uh, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because even your faith and your repentance is a gift of God. You can't take any credit of your own. This is really the heart of the gospel of grace. So let's continue on. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the ones who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. I want to continue to riff on this for a second. Paul is making a contrast from his first point which is if someone does work, then you can't consider his wages a gift, uh, but what is due? Here he says the opposite. He gives you kind of a, an alternative view. If someone does not work, uh, then you can't consider his wages what is due, but as a gift. That's essentially what he's teaching here. Uh, now, this does not mean that we as Christians don't work. We do work. Um, but we aren't working for our justification. We're working from our justification. It means that our works have no ability to make our, uh, ourselves righteous or to change our standing before God. Uh, our sinfulness has so far tarnished our mortal state that, uh, it's not our mortal state, our moral state, that no amount of works can restore us to perfection. Um, and this is why he says, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's our description. If you want a biography uh, or give an autobiography of yourself, just put that word there, ungodly. That's who we are outside of Christ. So our sin is strong enough to make a person ungodly for eternity. One sin is. And we know that because um, our perfect record is eliminated once we sin. We no longer have that perfect record and we need to be perfect in order to be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. You can't have sin in the presence of a holy God. And so the only way that we can enter back in to that holy, perfect presence is to be holy and perfect like your father who is holy and perfect. And the only way that we can be those things is if we have the holiness and perfect righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
And so our only hope, again, is to be made perfect and righteous by Jesus Christ. Uh, But again, this does not mean that we do not work. It means that our work is driven by gratitude for our justification, not by striving to earn our justification, which is the difference between legalism and a gospel of grace. And so Paul goes on to anchor these truths to the testimony of David. And I want to talk about that here. He says, just as, this is verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Okay, so he says the words just as. That's a um, a contrast clause. Um, sorry, no, it's not a contrast clause. It's a comparison clause. I'm mixing my hermeneutics up here. Paul is saying a person is justified by faith just as David says in his writings. That's basically what's being said here. Paul notes again that justification is a blessing. Pay attention to that word blessing. Uh, A blessing by definition is unmerited favor from God. And this is another way to differentiate justification from works um, and, uh, or by, by compensation, right? Um, If it's by compensation for our works, then you can't have it as a blessing. Salvation cannot be a blessing if it's earned essentially. Uh, You don't say that my employer blessed me with my paycheck this week. Uh, No, uh, you could say my employer paid me this week. He gave me what was due. You can say that your employer blessed you with Dodger tickets because that would be a blessing. And it would also be something that uh, you didn't deserve. Uh, It would be extra. Um, It's of grace. Um, So there's a little bit of logic that's going on here with Paul. And additionally, I want you to take note of Paul's use of interpreting scripture with scripture here. So Paul is talking about Genesis 15, 6 with defending uh, justification by faith with Abraham. He's using Psalm 32 here, referencing David's uh, talk and discussion about uh, justification. And so he's he's interpreting scripture with scripture. And this is just an important ethic for you to pay attention to. It's a principle that's taught by Christ as well. Um, it's the practice of looking to the scriptures to confirm uh, what is being said uh, to validate the gospel or to validate the truths of the gospel. We see this Acts 17, 11. It says, quote, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. End quote. Uh, these are the Bereans, right, that are looking at the scriptures. They're listening to Paul. Then they're looking at the scriptures in the Old Testament and trying to determine if what Paul is saying is right and lines up. And uh, they obviously come and, and say, yes, they, they do see that what Paul is saying is true in the Old Testament. And so we, we, we must always measure the preaching of men against the principles of scripture. That's just a, you know, something that you should remember there. Uh, you know, too many people in the church have their theology formed by what's been preached to them and not by what they've read. And so they, at, at some point you need to, not just let somebody else read you the Bible. You need to open it up yourself and read it. Um, and Jesus talks about this ethic as well, uh, talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 through 27. He says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, even Jesus is using the Old Testament to justify and to validate validate and to verify who he is and and, uh, the doctrine of his gospel. And so 
we always want to demonstrate the validity of the New Testament by the testimony of the Old Testament. I'm going to say that again. We always want to demonstrate the validity of the New Testament by the testimony of the Old Testament. That's a very important principle as you are studying Scripture. Now, furthermore, Paul's reference to David's doctrine is added evidence that justification has always been apart from works. That's how it's always been. And that means that the Old Testament saints were saved the exact same way as the New Testament saints, as you and I. And this is important because I opened up this episode asking that question, how are Old Testament saints saved? And we're going to see that they're saved the exact same way that we're saved. And while we look back to the cross and uh, the promises that were fulfilled on that cross, they looked forward to the cross and the promises promised uh, about the cross. And so while circumcision and the Passover were physical signs and seals that pointed to and prepared people for the coming of Christ, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, are physical signs and seals pointing us to the finished work of Christ, the fulfillment of those promises, um, and the promise of Christ's return to come. And so Paul, again, talks about this uh, 32nd Psalm uh, that is by David. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So again, even in the Old Testament, we see this two-part structure of the atonement and imputation of righteousness. That's two parts. You need to pay attention to that. The atonement for sin and the imputation of righteousness. And so under the old covenant, you don't have one without the other. You still have both, just like you do here. You have the atonement of sin and the imputation of righteousness. And this is the underlying argument of Paul. He's leveraging the testimony of the Old Testament to validate his gospel here in the New Testament. And these doctrines are mentioned in more places than just the Psalms. And I'm going to give you a handful of them uh, that talk about the messianic atonement of sin uh, or the covering of sin is what the word atonement means. Uh, and we see this teaching in several places, um, including the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 17. But more succinctly, this can be seen in uh, Isaiah 43, 25. It says, quote, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea, end quote. Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Obviously, that's a promise of coming to the new covenant. Um, now, allow me just to digress just for a second here. As I've taught in previous sermons, God cannot simply overlook sin. God cannot overlook sin. He, he doesn't just he can't just like save people without dealing with their sin. Somebody has to pay for the sin. It's got to either be laid on the shoulders of the savior or laid on the shoulders of the sinner. But somebody's got to pay for the sin because he's not an unjust God. He cannot just choose to not remember our sin. Otherwise he would be lacking justice. Um, so how, how does God save the Old Testament saints if the atoning work of the cross had not yet been accomplished? That's a core question. And that's the basis of Romans 3, 21 through 26, which really talks about the idea that um, the righteousness of Christ or righteousness of God has been manifested. 
Christ has come. You can see him now. And all that sin of the Old Testament that you might have thought was uh, overlooked is now being paid for on that cross. God was essentially not slow, uh, but came at the perfect time so that he could be, as Romans 3 says, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so all that uh, sin of the Old Testament saints was essentially paid for on that cross, and all the sin of the New Testament saints was paid for on that cross. And so God sent Jesus again at the appropriate time to demonstrate that he's not unjust, and he did not overlook those sins of the Old Testament saints, and that essentially all sin will be paid for, uh, again, by the sinner or by the Savior. And so to answer the question, how did God justify the Old Testament saints, we have to see that while the cross had not occurred in physical time um, until Christ came, um, God lives outside of time. And so there's an eternal application of the atonement of Christ to all who believed before and after the cross. And so uh, Luke 24, 44 through 47 says, then he said to them, um, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So again, even in the Old Testament, we see this again, this two-part process of atonement and imputation of righteousness. Now, we talked about the atonement. Let's just briefly talk about the imputation of righteousness in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 11, talking about the Messiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Zechariah 3, 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. That's the atonement, uh, taking the sin away. And to him, he said, quote, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's imputation. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, end quote. Um, Augustus Toddplay, or not Toddplay, Augustus Toplady. That's a funny last name. Um, he wrote some great psalms or in hymns with Charles Wesley. And they have a famous song that you probably have sung called Rock of Ages. And in that hymn, there's a stanza that says, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, from, that, from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Okay, the double cure here means this two-part structure. The, uh, the imputation or the atonement of sin and the imputation of righteousness. Uh, we must be saved from wrath, which again is that atonement, uh, the blotting out of our sins, and we must be made pure, which is the imputation of righteousness through faith. And so as Paul demonstrates here in Romans by the evidence of the Old Testament, this is how God has always saved his people um, by the atonement of sin uh, through the Messiah that was coming 
at the appropriate time and through the imputation of righteousness that was coming at the appropriate time uh, that we get to receive through faith. And so we have far more clarity on the side of the cross than they did, uh, but God's way of salvation has always been through faith. And so the central focus um, is Paul trying to remove any grip that men might have upon their works, bringing about justification before God. And to the Jews, they held on again to that circumcision. They held on to the law. They held on to their descendancy by blood. Um, and a lot of people today, uh, the religious person might hold on to their baptism. They might hold on to their confirmation in the Catholic church. They might hold on to their membership or some sort of moralism. And uh, Paul does not negate the value of these things. He, you know, he still is obviously pro uh, the Lord's Supper and pro baptism. Uh, he simply wants to reorient the minds of anyone who sees these signs and seals as some way to make a person justified before God. That's not what they do. Only faith can do that. And so to the Jews, physical circumcision must become spiritual circumcision. And to the New Testament Christians, physical baptism, if you're a Presbyterian, uh, needs to turn into spiritual baptism. Um, and even for the Baptists, there's lots of people that are Baptists that are physically baptized, but aren't actually spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit, meaning that they are born again and regenerate. Um, so ultimately, salvation comes not from what we do, uh, but looking at those sacramental truths, uh, the Lord's table the, of reconciliation, baptism, the cleansing of sins, um, you know, those things that for the Old Testament saints, the promise that was made from circumcision, that something was to come uh, for the need of man through the sexual reproductive organ. There's going to be a, uh, you know, this, this depravity that comes from man and there's uh, blood that's going to come as a result. And, uh, you know, the, the Passover and remembering these things, all these things, again, had a purpose. Uh, they did not save anybody, uh, but they did have a purpose. And the Lord uses these things but it's really our faith in Christ alone that will secure our justification. So on that note, hopefully that was helpful for you guys and edifying. This is my first episode back after having COVID on our second go. And so I can't believe I made it through without coughing and uh, you know hacking on the microphone for you guys. So thank you for hanging with me here. Uh, this episode was, uh, I think, very formative even for me when I was doing my study on that. And I hope it was continuing to reform your biblical view of the gospel and help you understand the mechanics of the gospel so that you can become gospel fluent, so that you can communicate the gospel to others. Uh, if you're a regular listener to this show, you guys can uh, leave a review on the podcast. Uh, you can write something. You don't have to. You could just tap the stars. Uh, they really do help the exposure to our show, and uh, it helps more people find out what we're doing here. Uh, but thank you guys for taking the time and being a loyal listener. We're going to continue to pop out great content for you guys that helps uh, strengthen biblical and theological literacy in the church. On that episode, or on that note, I should say, uh, my name is Dale Partridge, and this is Real Christianity, and we'll see you guys next week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. 
You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially, as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. 